Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we discuss California's redistricting process and the maps recently certified after the latest round of map drawing in the state. Only the second time California's nonpartisan redistricting commission has convened. This year's commission had the challenge of drawing maps with one less seat, as well as delayed census counts because of the pandemic and political wranglings in Washington, D.C. My guest is Samia Kamal, reporter for Cal Matters, who's been covering the redistricting process. So I wanted to talk to you about redistricting today because we just finished the statewide redistricting map drawing and now they've been submitted. So this is the second time that California has had its redistricting done by an independent commission. And that commission is made up of 14 people um, who, you know, citizens from around the state who applied to do this work. Um, And, you know, they come from different backgrounds, different professions, different parts of the state. And it's interesting because no one is a mapping expert. You know, they're uh, detectives (laughs) and healthcare administrators. But the idea is that this work should be done by citizens and it should be transparent, um, whereas in the past it was done by the state legislature. And that's similar to how it's done across many other states. And the problem with that was it was kind of done behind closed doors. So no one else really got a say in that. And that lent itself to a lot more of people getting to draw their own districts and get reelected and um, just kind of keeping incumbents safe. Are there any differences you're aware of from 2010 to 2020 in how the commission was formed or how the commission approached its work? Not in how the commission was formed because it is dictated by a state law by the Voters First Act, and that was passed in 2008. And in 2010, um, added to where in 2008, uh, the Voters First Act called for redistricting for the Assembly and State Senate. Um, And then in 2010, we added congressional districts. So um, process-wise, you know, commissioners are uh, required to follow what's set out in the state law. But process-wise, as with everything in 2020, this uh, year was very weird. And that definitely made an impact on how the work was done. You know, whereas in the 2011 process, redistricting is always done the year after the census is complete. So uh, census was completed 2020, 2021, we did redistricting. Um, So, you know, there was a delay in the release of census data and that took, you know, a big toll on how the work was done because, you know, whereas the 2011 commission had about six months to you know, get the data, get the analyses done and um, do public hearings and do all of that work. Uh, This commission, the data came out in September and their deadline was at the end of December because the maps needed to be done uh, in time for the June 2022 midterm. So it was a very crunch timeline. Um, You know, we were seeing meetings back to back daily, every day for basically all of those weeks. The difference was that this commission was able to spend a lot more time on outreach and, um, you know, they did in their final report see that they were able to get more public comment than we saw in the 2011 process. And I think that's also due to 
maybe people being a little more knowledgeable about what was happening second time around and, you know, groups, advocacy groups and community groups kind of learning about it the first time around and then this time being able to strategize and engage more. Um, Also, the technology played a role. The commission was able to have created a um, map drawing tool and anyone could submit a map, you know, that could be a, a group, or it could be an individual. We saw both throughout the process. I do recall there was one individual uh, who had done the entire mapping process um, herself. Wow. Or, yeah, uh, and she had submitted that map. And um, so that's kind of the, you know, democratic uh, side of it where it's it's like anybody can do that. Um, so I think that really changed the game also. I was told by a lot of community groups that having that software on the commission's website allowed them to collaborate more. You know, they were able to, to have two networks um, create their maps and then share them and then submit sort of a united front on that. Oh, that's really cool. That just feels like it makes the process even more democratic. I mean, there's this, certainly you have interest groups who get in there, but but the idea that anyone can go in and actually draw a map and then you can actually compare those across, that's pretty exciting. I don't know, when you were covering it, what was the reaction to, to that capability? You know, I think people appreciated it. It also... It makes things definitely more democratic, but also a little trickier because the commission had so many maps to kind of look at. And, you know, they're doing this in live time in the public, like, hey, what is what did this group say? Hey, you know, um, what are the line drawers suggesting and trying to sync up everything? Because, you know, one of the main um, charges of the commission is to collect public input and try to incorporate that um, so it's uh, more democratic, more input, but also uh, a lot more work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you brought up this this technology, but we've also been in this pandemic and we haven't been able to meet in person. And I don't know about you, but I've noticed that meetings I attend are much more well attended because people, it's easy to log on to Zoom, but whereas I have to like drive down somewhere. So I wonder, do you think that that also played a role in the um, the engagement? You know, that was something that the commission uh, acknowledged as well. It was interesting that it did allow a lot more people to submit comments. You not only could you call in and give your comment, but you could also submit it through an online tool and the commission was citing specific comments, you know, that were submitted via text. So they were looking at kind of everything. Um, like with any public comment, it can be, you know, a few voices are very um, consistent. And because of the digital divide, not everyone has access or um, knowledge of how the process works. And, you know, I did hear commissioners bring that up when they were doing the mapping. They were trying to be conscious of the fact that, yes, we're hearing a lot of people talk about this. Um, what do we think, you know, based on the data that other people who might not have the time, the ability to call in or to write in what they might feel about that? So it's a, a little bit of a guessing game. And I think that's true for any public comment process. Um, so yeah, it was a, a maybe a little bit of a mixed bag. That's a, an important point to keep at the forefront is that not everybody, even though it feels more accessible, that's not true for everybody. That's wonderful to hear that the commission was keeping that in mind. I'm even thinking, I'm sitting here and I'm like, ooh, that would be fun to draw a map. Am I going to draw a map? No. <laughs> yeah, I definitely thought multiple 
times that, you know, oh, I should draw my own map. And I, I did not. <laughs> so we've gone through this process now. And now what happens? The maps were submitted in December, in late December. But that doesn't mean they're just the maps. Now we have this process that takes place to get them in place. So what happens now? The window is now open for legal challenges. The commission is still meeting a monthly to discuss any pending litigation. Um, definitely not daily anymore, but so far I have been tracking lawsuits. I have not heard of um, anything at the moment, but I don't think the commission is, you know, in the clear just yet, perhaps. But on the other side of that, you know, 2022 midterm elections are coming up and so many candidates and incumbents are already using those districts to plan their campaigns, to strategize, to pick which district they're going to run in. I think if a lawsuit needs to be filed, it would have to be soon. Um, but, you know, all throughout the process, the commission had legal counsel to try to ward off lawsuits, but the maps are certified by the Secretary of State's office, so they will go into effect in June. I didn't realize the commission still met to engage with any lawsuits that might come forward. That's a charge that I didn't realize was part of it. Is it the commission that responds to lawsuits or it plays the role of defendant? They do play the role of defendant. And what's interesting is commissioners are actually selected, appointed for a 10-year term. So technically, they're um, in effect until the next commission is selected in 2030. What they'll be doing, you know, in addition to seeing the maps through, seeing through any legal challenges is reflecting on the process, you know, what went right, what went wrong. They will be doing a lessons learned report and kind of collecting their thoughts on what they could improve on their recommendations for the next commission. One of the things you mentioned at the national level, census data was delayed for quite a chunk of time. Let's talk a little bit about the national process. Uh, what happened this time around with this census? What led to the delays? One, the pandemic, you know, um, so much of, I think, census work is canvassing, going door to door and collecting responses. And that was really hard to do during the pandemic. And then there was also the Trump administration's effort to add a citizenship question, which um, ultimately failed, but it did, you know, instill some fear and hesitancy of people responding. So the result of that was likely an undercount. That's particularly troubling because much of the impact of that is likely communities of color lower income communities where that fear existed and where, you know, the result of a census is um, ideally representation on federal funding. And so, you know, the impact is um, pretty profound in that regard. And it's profound for 10 years. Mm -hmm which is unfortunate, yeah. Now, in a lot of states, they're still having legislatures do this, uh, but, but California is a state that has this very transparent citizen-based process. So how did this affect the commission? One impact of the census data was that it showed California's population grew slower than other places, and so we lost a congressional district. We went from 53 to 52. One approach of the commission was that they did not use the prior lines. They did not use the, you know, districts as they exist. They, they started from scratch. And so in a sense, you know, not using the lines meant you're not even thinking about where the 53 are and 
like boiling it down to 52. You're only thinking about drawing 52. But at the same time, that shift has a big impact on how districts are drawn, you know, for people in those districts. I think some of the um, concerns from the community were that in particular Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles saw slower growth and um, particularly areas where, you know, the black community had more districts. There was concern that there would be fewer. Also, there was, you know, in the Central Valley, a lot of concern about um, the fact that the area is uh, so heavily Latino and there has not been adequate representation um, of that Latino community. And so, you know, when you're talking about reducing the number of districts who will lose out on on representation in a way, um, I think those are some of the concerns that, that I heard. Was it Southern California that saw the impact of that decreased seat or who felt the impact of that decreased seat the most in the state? I think we did see... Uh, a fewer number of districts in LA County, um, but there were sort of gains in other ways where, you know, there were more Latino districts throughout the state overall. And um, we still do not have a district in California that is majority Black. Wow. Yeah. Um, there are these influence districts. And that's, and when we talk about majority, it would be where a particular community makes up more than 50%. But then there are influence districts with at least 30% of any community. Um, And there's, you know, coalition districts where um, the commission is looking a lot at the voting patterns. And, you know, if two communities vote similarly, and then they can kind of be brought together to make sure that both communities are empowered. Um, so we did see see that as well. On that note, um, the commission has parameters, and you mentioned a few of them, thinking about influence districts, thinking about keeping, not necessarily splitting up uh, communities of color so that they lose their influence, but making sure they have the ability to vote as a blocker to to have their voice heard. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other parameters the commission needed to consider as it drew boundaries? The state law has a set of criteria and they are ranked. So the number one criteria is that every district on the state assembly, state senate, congressional district has to have equal population so that no one person's vote means more than another. Another. That's the top criteria. And then after that, we have complying with the Voting Rights Act, and that is ensuring that there is no, you know, dilution of a community's um, vote. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking about California redistricting with Cal Matters reporter Samia Kamal. We do have to have districts that are contiguous, so all parts must touch. And then you have communities of interest, which I do find the most interesting in California because communities of interest can be any group that has shared social, economic, environmental concerns. And you have so many diverse communities in California that intersect and overlap and contrast. And, you know, that's probably uh, the criteria that the commission talked about the most, um, you know, trying to keep different communities together. And I think the way that California is, you know, its environment is, its topography is, and also how its cultural groups are, that doesn't always fit neatly into like, hey, let's keep the city together or even, hey, let's keep this county together. Um, It tends to be very 
almost patchy, you know, we have patches of communities all over the place and, you know, they, they make up community in different ways. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that's defined moving forward or how future commissions kind of tackle that. Um, there was also a little bit of ambiguity, you know, um, how to weigh one community of interest input over another. The guiding principle that the commission did have was if one community's uh, input helps support one of the higher criteria, like equal population, then you can go with that. But in conversation and discussion, it can feel a lot like pitting communities against each other. And, you know, that's uh, not ideal. Were there any other challenges you noticed uh, with the commission trying to grapple with this as they moved forward? One of the interesting things that uh, I reported on with my colleague, Ben Christopher at CalMatters, was hidden partisanship in the uh, public input process. You know, the rule is that anyone can comment, even if you're a public official, you don't have to disclose like who you're speaking on behalf of or what your interests are. But, you know, sometimes if that comment is coming from sort of a political operative, it's a lot more strategic. They know the game, they know how to get results in a way that uh, other people might not. So one thing that the commission did talk about was whether that needs to be refined, whether, you know, ideally they would like to hear everyone's disclosure, everyone's full agenda, because there's no rule saying just because you have this political interest, it doesn't mean you're not allowed to express it. But it's easier if they know the landscape of things. So, you know, we did see some coordinated efforts, which you can kind of tell when a lot of people are saying the same thing. Um, and that is something, you know, the, we talked to the commission back in September, kind of before a lot of the public comment had happened. And it was something they were aware of. In my opinion, it's a little hard with that crunch timeline to be able to really um, take that public comment and sort of um, analyze it and process it and be able to um, sort things out. So I think that was one of the challenges. And then in the bigger picture, I would say just, you know, dealing with, uh, for example, there we have these mountain communities on the east side of California. There was um, Inyo County, Mono County, and they don't have a lot of population. Um, so trying to get them into um, you know, a district, uh, there was discussion about a mountain district because those communities have so much in common and a lot of shared um, struggles that, you know, ideally would be represented by the same representative. But, you know, when trying to get enough numbers for those districts, um, at one point it was from the border of Oregon all the way to uh, Imperial Valley near San Diego. And wow. It was a huge. District. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the end, it ended up being trimmed a bit to be a little more compact, which is another one of the criteria. But um, I think, you know, that's kind of the challenge with California is uh, there's very concentrated population in the LAOC area and the Bay Area. But then um, you have a lot of spread everywhere else and having to make districts with equal populations make some strange district shapes. A lot of conversation around weird district shapes tends to be because it's gerrymandered. That wasn't particularly the case here or at all. It's just that California is kind of a weirdly shaped place. <laughs> because you brought up gerrymandered, I think you know one of the reasons or the reason this redistricting 
uh, commission has come into being was because California was trying to avoid gerrymandering. So many states still could be defined as having gerrymandered districts. And we're seeing news reports of states across the country making districts even less competitive and more certain uh, to go one way or the other and lawmakers picking their voters rather than voters picking their lawmakers. I'm wondering if you have anything you want to share about about California's uh, the context of our process and our result to the, that of the nation. One of the points of opposition against having an independent commission when that was, you know, in discussion was that having the same number, the commission is made up of 14 people, five Republicans, five Democrats, four people um, not affiliated with either party. And so it's kind of uh, leveling the playing field in some way. But in the national stage, when you're comparing California's independent process to um, other states, Texas, for example, or any other state where the redistricting is done by the legislature and those legislatures are Republican majority, it's weakening California's ability to sort of counter those other states, you know. Um, and so that definitely has a partisan effect and it affects the impact of the House of Representatives and its ability to get things done. So um, it definitely plays a role. And then having, you know, the congressional districts go down from 53 to 52, that also plays a role. So that's one part of the puzzle, gerrymandering. That's the effect it has. It definitely has an impact. At the same time, um, you know, those who are voted into office, you know, the next um, part of it is that they need to be able to work together and, and get things done, you know, regardless of of how and um, who is elected. Yeah, it's so fascinating to me because the argument can almost sound like we shouldn't be fair because they're not being fair. And it's such a struggle because, well, we should all be fair, it, it, you know, rather rather than giving up what we've gained in fairness. Anyway, it's, it's just an interesting conversation. Um, and I think an important one. You mentioned the lawmakers. And yeah, there's 52 districts now instead of 53. The districts have changed. And so lawmakers now who want to continue to be lawmakers need to make adjustments. What you You've seen or how you've seen things start to shake out as the maps have been certified and, and gone into use. Yeah, that has been very interesting. As soon as the maps were finalized, and even before that, we saw this flurry of campaign activity of who is running in which district and who is deciding not to run. You know, the commission did not have the incumbents' locations. They weren't even thinking about where elected officials are and how they would be impacted by the new maps. So the result of that was you had some districts where there were two sitting officials in a district, sometimes even three. And so in the new districts, they kind of had to play musical chairs, like, okay, who's running in which district? There are some districts that had, you know, no existing representatives. So, like, somebody could move to that district, but... Then you also have the the changing composition of those districts where one might be more Democratic than it was in the past, one might be more Republican. Um, so there was a lot of uh, shifting and we saw some people decide not to run. Uh, there was Representative Harley Ruda, who was in the same district as a fellow Democrat, and then he announced he's suspending his campaign because he didn't want to run against a fellow Democratic incumbent, and then also didn't want to run in a different district where, you know, um, he did not have a tie to that community. So I think we saw a lot of that these past few weeks. Now that the state map has been drawn, regional 
communities, uh, localities have to now then redraw their maps? Under the Fair Maps Act, cities and counties are allowed to have independent commissions, but they're not required to. Um, In 2020, Governor Newsom vetoed a bill that would have required some of the larger counties with more than 400,000 residents to set up independent redistricting commissions. Do you know why he vetoed it? I believe it was because of, you know, costs. And I think he didn't want to impose the requirement to one of the groups that uh, sort of helped shepherd um, the Fair Maps Act into existence was Common Cause. And they're kind of watching different local Uh, mapping processes throughout the state. And it is something that they want to see if it makes sense to push for, you know, um, we are seeing throughout the state, some of the the gerrymandering that um, was feared at the state level, you know, we might be seeing some of that at the local level. And just this week in the assembly, Assemblywoman Sabrina Cervantes had read AB 1307, which would um, implement an independent commission um, for the Riverside County Board of Supervisors, because she said they won't comply with the, the state law and drawing their own districts. And, you know, what that means is they might be drawing it to their advantage, or sometimes it's not so explicit. It's more like, oh, the districts are pretty much already in the numbers that they need to be. So let's just tinker around the edges. But that's actually exactly what we don't want to do, because the whole idea of redistricting is looking at the landscape of who has representation, which communities have not been represented, who's having their vote diluted. So you don't want to just tinker around the edges. That can be kind of a red flag. And also things change in 10 years, maybe, you know, and you want to address that. When you say that Riverside is going to not comply with the state law, is there already recourse for that? Or does that just happen and it happens? Unless somebody decides to uh, file a lawsuit, um, it kind of just happens. And I believe one of the reasons that's the case is before there used to be a requirement for state maps at least to be cleared beforehand by the courts. And now that preclearance is no longer the case. So you just kind of have to let the maps happen. And then, um, you know, somebody has to sue in order to counter them, but there isn't really a great way. And then if nobody sues, those maps are in place for the next 10 years. Are there any court challenges you're aware of? There was one that uh, bubbled up while the commission was still working on its mapping process. And there was, you know, a fear that it would delay the maps, although it didn't end up doing so. So, but that was based on a couple of things. One, there was a group of Republican voters who took issue with the commission not disclosing the uh, Voting Rights Act analysis, which looks at racially polarized voting. And, you know, that's something that the prior commission used as well. They also didn't disclose it. And the commission did disclose parts of it, like, hey, these are areas where we kind of need to protect voters of color, but without disclosing the specific numbers. And I think that can feel counter to, you know, the whole (laughs) goal of transparency. But by the law, the commission was in its right to do so. And so that's what the court found. The group also took issue with the legal consultants that the commission had hired because they felt they were I guess, more um, in support of Democrats than Republicans. But that case didn't end up moving forward. Um, I'm on the lookout and um, listening for 
for any other lawsuits that pop up, but I don't know of any others at the moment. Is there anything you want to say or add to this that I haven't asked you that you think it's important for people to know? There was interesting research done by uh, the USC Schwarzenegger Institute for State and Global Policy, and they did show that states with independent commissions tend to be fairer and more representative. Um, And I think what's interesting is Arnold Schwarzenegger was a big proponent of these independent redistricting commissions. He worked with Common Cause to get this into existence. And um, I think it's interesting because there were a few tries in the past to have this happen and and those failed. And this was the one that um, has, you know, really shifted the redistricting conversation to include a lot more community input and more engagement among people who might otherwise not care about redistricting or know what it is. Yeah, this very sort of stodgy thing, like, how do you make this sexier? How do you get people interested? Well, I mean, we are, we're all getting more and more interested as as we move forward and as we watch what happens nationally. And Schwarzenegger is someone who all data points to the fact that he probably would never have been governor had he had to go through a primary process, which was a little bit more extreme or partisan. And so to find that central path through or that path where it's more fair, that makes sense to me why he um, he connects with this process. Thank you to my guest, Samia Kamal, reporter for Cal Matters, who's been covering California's redistricting process. Because you listen to news in context, you might also like another podcast called Civic. Civic is also produced by a local newsroom, the San Francisco Public Press. Civic is a go-to show for understanding how things work in San Francisco or why they don't. Civic talks about what's going on in the city and the Bay Area with everyone from activists to city officials, from researchers to your neighbors. They'll ask the hard questions about everything from housing to public transportation, climate, the pandemic, or homelessness. New episodes come out every Thursday. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.